I'm Kathleen Moore. I'm the Associate Director for Clinical Research at the Stevenson Cancer Center in, the Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City in the United States. Now, you have been creating quite a stir here at ESMO with this uh, presentation about a laparib. Now, this is in the setting of um, ovarian cancer. Can you tell me what it was you were challenged by, what you tried to do here? So the, the big challenge for advanced ovarian cancer, other than the fact that we can't prevent it, is that um, the vast majority of patients occur with advanced disease, and while it's very treatable, it's hard to cure. And so, um, and that's really, we've, we've done well developing uh, new assets that we can use at the time of recurrence and sort of have incremental improvements in small progression-free survival that I think has improved how long women live with disease, but we really haven't meaningfully prolonged that first interval, disease-free interval, to a point that we could start thinking about long-term disease-free survival for women. So enter PARP inhibition and also enter the significance of BRCA1 and 2 testing. Can you fill me in on what you did in this study? This study incorporated the PARP inhibitor Olaparib, uh, which is uh, already approved in many parts of the world for use as a maintenance therapy therapy in the recurrent setting. So in patients with ovary cancer who recur and are still sensitive to their platinum-based therapy, um, they can get maintenance Olaparib until they progress. There's no two-year cut point. They're on it until the next time they progress. And it really has a meaningful impact on their progression-free survival. So that's a good indication. Um, So you would think you could incorporate that into frontline therapy and try and replicate that, so to speak. And so this was a pretty forward-thinking idea back in 2011, um, which is when really it was uh, initiated. And at that point, um, patients with BRCA mutations had never been prospectively studied. And so we really didn't have this great deal of data on what their, we, we thought they did better than non-BRC patients, and that's true, but we really didn't know what their disease course was. And so there was still this trepidation about using maintenance because there was a sense that there were all these cured patients that we were over-treating. Right, and what was the special significance of PARP inhibition in this setting of BRCA1 and 2? So if you have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, what it means is you're missing or you have a dysfunctional BRCA protein. And BRCA protein is one of the key proteins for homologous recombination repair, double-strand DNA repair. So if you're born with that, it predisposes you to cancers, ovary and breast cancer, and then some others. Um, If you develop one of those cancers, it becomes actually the Achilles heel for that cancer because then if you treat the cancer with something that causes damage to the tumor's DNA, the tumor can't fix its DNA. So it's got an inherent vulnerability to, um, to DNA damaging agents, and that's called synthetic lethality. So patients with a BRCA mutation are the, and this has been demonstrated, should be the most sensitive. So if you're going to try it in frontline in anybody, you try it in a BRCA patient population. Yeah. Could you describe then what you did in the SOLO1 phase three trial? So SOLO1 was a randomized international phase three study, and it randomized women who had a known BRCA mutation, uh, either one they were born with most commonly, or you could also come on if you knew your tumor had a BRCA mutation. Um, They... um, had to be stage three or four, they had to be of good performance status, and they had to have an attempt at an upfront or an attempt at a cytoreductive surgery, either upfront or in the interval setting. And then they're randomized in a two to one fashion to uh, Olaparib tablets twice daily or 
placebo twice daily. And the stratification was whether or not they'd had a complete or partial response to their induction chemotherapy. And so, um, so patients could not come on solo one who didn't respond to their chemotherapy or who kind of responded, but not enough. These were good responders. And the primary endpoint was investigator-assessed progression-free survival. So that's the time period between randomization and the time of progression or the time that we did a data cutoff, you know, if you hadn't progressed or censored at that point. What about overall survival? Overall survival is a key secondary endpoint. So secondary endpoints are progression-free survival two, time to first and subsequent therapies, and overall survival. But overall survival... Um, not but just overall survival is going to take years more to follow so we won't have overall survival data for years that's because of the good results uh it's because of the good results it's also because um, this is a good prognostic group of patients so you know even among those who've recurred we're still going to have effective therapies for them for a long time so you know overall survival requires a death so they're you know we'll have to follow these patients for a long period of time i hope it's also because of the excellent results of the primary use that we have patients that never recur. So could you give me the data from uh, progression-free survival, both the observed progression-free survival and the PFS2? PFS2. So so for the primary analysis, which was investigator-assessed progression-free survival, the median progression-free survival for the placebo arm was 13.8 months. uh, And the median progression-free survival for the olaparib arm has not yet been reached. But the difference between the Kaplan-Meier survival curves gives us a hazard ratio of 0.3 with a highly statistically significant confidence interval. So we would say that we have a 70% drop in the risk of progression. And that improvement in progression-free survival as compared to placebo looks to be around three years. And what about PFS2? So the benefit of frontline olaparib appears maintained when you look at PFS2, which is the time from randomization to solo one until the second progression. Um, And so that hazard ratio is 0.5. So you decrease the risk of progression on your second therapy by 50% if you got frontline olaparib. Um, and that benefit was even more significant because there was crossover in the placebo arm. So the 35% of the patients who received placebo on solo one knew their BRCA status. So they got part when they recurred, uh, either as treatment or as maintenance, you know, as a part of their second line therapy. So there was a big crossover, and we still maintain the statistical significance of um, frontline olaparib. And you were on the drug for two years if you were one of these patients. Now, that might have been quite tough because if you could tell the drug was working, you'd want to stay on longer, wouldn't you? Well, I think you, know, you came on, 80% of patients came onto the study with no evidence of disease. So there wasn't a sense that they knew it was working other than they weren't progressing. Um, so we did have patients who really wanted to remain on forever because they knew the risk of recurrence was high. I think this data is very reassuring to them that discontinuing at two years, and who knows if we could have gone shorter, but that's not something we want to talk about, um, is enough and that they didn't need to stay on it unnecessarily long. So you can confirm that the per protocol regimen of two years was the correct one? That was the correct one, yeah. Hmm. Well, it... It was correct based on these results. Is it the absolute right length? I mean, that's the length we chose, and it was a positive study. So I think, yes. Mm. So can you tell me what you think doctors should make of this? Some doctors have been making something of it already here at the ESMO Congress, haven't they? Well, I mean, I think it's practice changing. Patients are going to be demanding this. When the 
when uh, these results are made public, I think rightly so. Uh, and so we're going to need to get the, the drug um, approved uh, in this line. It's not approved as frontline as of yet in any part of the world. Um, we're also going to have to move genetic testing or tumor testing very early in someone's um, um, treatment course. It's not usually done in the first weeks. We're going to have to move it up so we can make decisions. So I think that's going to challenge some healthcare systems to accommodate that. Um, so I think there's going to be some work to do. What does it say to us about the need for BRCA testing? It should be universal. That's been known for a long time. Every recommendation is universal testing. It just needs to be done earlier. And you started by saying that these patients were the ideal candidates because they've got the tar target lesion. But what about those patients who don't have BRCA? Would they respond to any extent to a PARP inhibitor? Well, we know they respond because there's many studies in the recurrent setting that show they respond just not as well. Um, but there are frontline studies that should be reaching maturity in 2019 that have enrolled them to PARP inhibitors with or without bevacizumab. Um, and so when those results, I think we'll know the answer to that. But until then, that would be premature in the frontline. So what would you say are the clinical implications now? I think immediate adoption of frontline olaparib for BRCA patients and, and um, moving genetic testing and tumor testing up so you can identify those patients early. Um, but that all has to come with availability of testing and um, drug. And if it's not getting you to say the same thing again, what do you do for your patients right now? Well, I can't give them this drug yet. So I put them on clinical trial that has a PARP inhibitor, I hope. But once I can get them the drug, I'll start using it. The brief take-home message for doctors? I mean, I think move genetic testing up. Test your patients, test them early, and as soon as a drug is available, make sure that they're eligible for it.